This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So those of you on the screen, you can't see, but there's a Zendo full of people here uh, doing a one-day, two-day retreat. And um, those of you in the room, there's a screen full of people here <laughs> attending a Dharma talk. And this uh, practice period, we're right now in the middle of a two-month practice period. Um, we're about, I think, one hour from the middle of the two-month practice period. <laughs> this, this is the day, I think, the middle day. Um, so the first half of this uh, practice period, we've been talking about Buddha nature. And uh, for the second half, uh, I think it would be nice to explore the topic of Buddha nature. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of theme of this practice period as particularly taught in the Sri Mala Devi Simhanada Sutra that we're chanting these mornings, a section of, but there's many, many teachings on Buddha nature. We probably can't fit them all into the next month, but uh, we can bring up some of them today. One way that, uh, some ways that Sri Mala Devi, Queen Sri Mala, uh, expounds the lion's roar of Buddha nature in ancient India, in, in her sutra. She calls it the naturally pure mind that. Uh, all sentient beings have a naturally pure mind. So we might sometimes feel like, well, um, I'm an exception to that. I, I, my mind is not pure, but uh, if we can trust Queen Srimala, she says that how, whatever impure thoughts and feelings and we might have, in, in parentheses here, purity uh, in these great vehicle dharma teachings usually means like uh, not distorted by duality and by greed, hate, and delusion. And impure means distorted by the illusion of separation or duality and infused with greed, hate, and delusion. That's what we mean by purity and impurity. You might feel like, well, I have some greed and some hate and some delusion. What about my naturally pure mind? This is the teaching that all, all living beings share in this naturally pure mind even when there's some greed, hate, and delusion happening in the foreground of our experience. 
the background of our experience is uh, naturally pure, naturally non-dual, naturally free and okay, unchangingly okay. And this natural okayness a lot of the time seems to be temporarily uh, obscured, covered by our dualistic thoughts and our dualistic perceptions and our um, self-centered concerns and so on. The naturally pure mind doesn't go anywhere. It's just temporarily hidden by this surface stuff. This is some of the ways that kind of paraphrasing a little bit, Sri Devi talks about this Buddha nature that we all have. So uh, there's many ancient and modern and future teachings about Buddha nature. One of them is, is a, an old Indian treatise called the Ratna Gotra Vibhaga, the uh, exposition on the jewel disposition. You could translate this title as the exposition on the precious disposition that all beings have called Buddha nature. It's a Buddha nature treatise. And uh, in this old, maybe like fourth century Indian treatise in verse 1.157, the verse is something like, why did the Buddhas teach that Buddha nature exists in every sentient being? This is kind of like a prominent Buddha nature teaching that uh, Buddha nature is present in every sentient being, that naturally pure mind, the mind of Buddha, the perfectly awakened mind is already naturally present in all of us right now as our, what's called in Zen, ordinary mind, just our ordinary awareness as it is, is the same as Buddha's ordinary awareness. It's just that for us, this Ordinary awareness is mixed with all these, um, you know, thoughts about better and worse, and and this is okay and that's not okay, and uh, I'm over here, you're over there, and uh, I like this and I don't like that, and so on. And for Buddha, it's the same ordinary 
mind, the same naturally pure mind, but uh, it's not hidden by all those kinds of thoughts. So uh, why did the Buddhas teach that this Buddha nature, ordinary mind, exists in every sentient being? This treatise asks, the Buddhas taught this so that us sentient beings may relinquish five kind of mistakes. We might even say that five obscurations that kind of hide the naturally pure mind. What are these five? that Buddha nature helps us to relinquish or to let go of. The first one is uh, I think maybe literally translated as something like faint heartedness, including self contempt and doubt. But maybe we could, we could understand this as um, low self-esteem. Why did the Buddhas teach its Buddha nature um, as, as present and, and always available as the true nature of all sentient beings? They taught it to, um, so that we can relinquish this kind of painful, um, misunderstanding called low self-esteem. I think it's a common um, obscuration of us sentient beings. It especially might uh, might kind of crop up when we're doing things like a Zen sashin. <laughs> you might feel like a this is crazy. I, I can't do this. Like sitting day after day and like the Buddhas, um, like Shakyamuni Buddha, he didn't seem to have a problem doing sashin. He sat like for like six years without moving and all this kind of stuff. But uh, I am so not like that. I um, can barely make it through every period I'm thinking about. Should I leave? And because I, I can't do this. And then we, I start hearing about, um, you know, the perfect awakening of the Buddhas and like, that's like out of my league. This is, doesn't seem, maybe some people, but um, not, not me. The Buddha's taught this Buddha nature to help us let go of these kinds of thoughts. Why? because we have the identical nature as Shakyamuni Buddha and all the Buddhas. If we can um, trust this more and more deeply based on these teachings and, and kind of like exploring the teachings more and more deeply to kind of taste uh, this truth, even just a little bit, which helps us to trust them even more. Uh, this is good medicine for lower self-esteem. See how that can make sense. 
we have everything we need. We don't need to add anything at all to it. That's the teaching of Buddha nature. And uh, we don't need to take anything away from the naturally pure mind. It's just that uh, we may need to kind of see through the, um, the obscurations that hide it. We might feel like I kind of get just of that, and it seems like if I were to um, kind of see through my obscurations of thoughts and feelings and so on that seem to hide this unchanging, naturally pure mind, that it would be pretty good. That would be pretty good, that naturally pure mind, but not like Shakyamuni Buddha's. His is like probably like an upgraded naturally pure mind. <laughs> but the teaching is that it's not like that. It's that our naturally pure mind is exactly identical to all the fully awakened Buddhas. Nothing needs to be added to it. Wow, if we can trust this, um, I think this can really uh, um, kind of start eating away at a habitual low self-esteem and doubt, I think goes with this, like um, doubt that I can, do this practice and realize uh, this practice. That's one, one of the five reasons the Buddha's taught Buddha uh, nature to, uh, so we can relinquish this low self-esteem. The second one is um, translated maybe kind of literally as um, the, the flaw that we can relinquish is the contempt for inferior beings. And maybe we could retranslate this as um, inflated self-esteem, like the opposite of the first. What an awesome teaching of Buddha nature that it, it can help us relinquish low self-esteem and overly inflated self-esteem. That, ha that has contempt for inferior beings. This would be an example of kind of the opposite of like, I can't do this practice. This would be the thought like, nobody else around here can do this practice, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I'm really gonna do this and like, you know, good luck to everybody else. I, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> this eliminates that kind of thinking, that kind of nasty thinking. Why? Because all beings equally have this Buddha nature. Everybody um, uh, has equal access to it. No matter how many obscurations, um, we could say practically speaking, maybe some people seem to have more obscurations, some less, but um, this is focusing on the fact that that's not the important issue. The important issue is that what's being obscured is exactly identical and complete in all sentient beings. That's what we mean by equal access. Yes, it helps to hear teachings about this. It helps to have a practice where we can try to see into this. Um, but this is possible for anyone. And there's many stories in the tradition about people seeing into the Buddha nature, um, you know, verifying their own Buddha nature without having any practice beforehand at all. 
and without ever hearing about Buddha, Dharma, and so on. It's possible. Why is it possible? Because all beings have this Buddha nature. Maybe it's a little overly Buddhist to call it Buddha nature, but we don't really, as Buddhist Buddhism, doesn't really have a uh, monopoly on this Buddha nature, of course. That's just one word for it. It's the naturally pure mind in all beings. It doesn't matter what religion or background or, um, or type of being. This is not only human beings, it's all sentient beings. Animals don't have any special religion. They equally share in this Buddha nature. That's two reasons why the Buddha taught. <clears throat> two, two um, you could say, obscurations to our naturally pure mind that can be relinquished through the teaching of Buddha nature. Low self-esteem and overly inflated high self-esteem. The third um, reason Buddha nature is taught by the Buddhas is uh, for relinquishing, uh, grasping at what is unreal. So we could say grasping the reality and the substantiality of these obscurations. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the teaching, Buddha nature teachings say, what's real is this naturally pure mind. Buddha nature is real. And uh, what's not actually real, I mean, it definitely appears and we experience it, but it's not ultimately, substantially, permanently real, is these temporary obscurations, like, like the ones mentioned, like, I can't do this. That's not a, that thought doesn't have the same reality that Buddha nature does, or I can do this and nobody else can. That's not, that thought doesn't have the reality um, that Buddha nature has. Real usually means that which is actually true and that which is uh, always the case. When we talk about ultimately true, ultimate reality in Buddha Dharma that generally there's different versions of it and different Buddhist traditions, but they all um, are about what is always the case without exception. If there's any exceptions to something we call ultimately real, then it's not really ultimately real. So this naturally pure mind is always the case in all sentient beings. It's ultimately real, but the, but the thought like, I can't do this practice and I can't realize Buddha nature is not always the case. It sometimes appears, that thought appears out of Buddha nature and uh, then gets kind of like plastered over the Buddha nature that it arose from and hides the Buddha nature that it arose from. This kind of thing is possible, strange or possible. And actually it's happening pretty much all the time <laughs> for 
for all sentient beings to a greater or lesser extent. The thought, the thought, I can't realize this ordinary mind that's present right now, shining through every experience. I can't realize that that ordinary mind can like, can manifest such a thought like that. And then the thought that it manifests hides the very, its very source. Stranger. But this Buddha nature is taught to um, relinquish grasping at the, those kinds of thoughts as real. <clears throat> grasping what is unreal as real. That's the reason Buddha nature was taught. Or that Buddha, that Buddha nature exists in every sentient being, the reason that was taught. The fourth reason why this was taught is uh, to relinquish deprecating the real, true Dharma. Again, kind of the opposite of the previous one. The previous reason was um, to help us relinquish grasping what is not real as real. The fourth reason is to help us um, uh, deprecate what is real as being not real. Deprecate means like um, this naturally pure mind, we can hear this teaching and say, that sounds cool, but um, I don't believe it. I, uh, it's a nice encouraging teaching, but um, I don't really think it's true. But what I do kind of think is true is these thoughts like, I can't stand this. I, because doesn't it actually feel more real? <laughs> that thought is like, I'm out of here. That's real. And this naturally pure mind, I know Coco is trying to be encouraging at all, but like, <laughs> it's not going to work. Because my thought that like, I got to get out of here is more real. The fourth reason my Buddha nature was taught is to help us let go of that, of that, of kind of deprecating what is real. And uh, I think that, that this treatise, in addition to saying that what's real is that all beings have Buddha nature, it, it goes even further. This, we might start deprecating teachings like this because they sound a little far-fetched to say that this ordinary mind, this naturally present disposition, this, uh, this dual, dual disposition, the Ratna Gotra, this, um, this heart of the thus come one, the Tathagata Garva, the, uh, the awakened nature of Buddha, Datu, that this is um, not only just peaceful and free, it's also um, naturally uh, is replete with all Buddha 
qualities like unconditional love and unconditional compassion. It might feel like I, I was kind of down with this up to this point. <laughs> okay, there's, a, there's an ordinary mind behind all this, um, all these thoughts and feelings. But to say that that ordinary mind is already naturally um, uh, infused with, um, you know, is naturally, or it, it naturally has these Buddha qualities like unconditional infinite love and unconditional infinite compassion for all beings. Sometimes when I hear things like that, I say, well, this is like, now we're taking it to a different level. That's, that's a step further. I don't know. I, um, I don't know if I fully believe that part. But that, that is the teaching of Buddha nature. When nothing's blocking it, when nothing's obscuring it at all, it is, it is naturally loving to everyone. Even like the really annoying ones, it's say, how could it be like um, unconditionally loving? Loving in Buddhism usually means um, wanting others to be completely free from or wanting others to be totally happy, wishing happiness for others. Maybe that makes it a little more accessible. Compassion is wishing that others not suffer and love is wishing that others are happy. But even the feeling of like that, that love, uh, the more conventional sense of love as just this sense of like, we're not separate at all where like you are equally as, um, as important as me, that kind of feeling. Uh, that comes along naturally, it is said with the Buddha nature. Maybe we can, you know, if we reason about it a little bit, maybe we can see what well, could it be that the only thing that blocks that, that um, sense of unity with others is just our thoughts and feelings and even perceptions that their other is separate from us over there. Anyway, uh, this fourth reason um, that um, Buddha nature's taught is um, so we don't deprecate what is real, the commentary uses. Some people start deprecating what is real as this kind of infinite love and infinite compassion of Buddha nature. They start to Deprecate means just, I don't believe it. But Buddha nature is taught to help us like open to that possibility that it could be so. All beings have that, that reality, but to completely, you know, unobscure it, to see through all the obscurations, maybe, um, maybe that's, that's a big practice, but that this is possible. If we had to create if, um, infinite love and compassion, that sounds actually almost impossible. But it's, if it's already here, but it just needs to, it needs to be unblocked and revealed, maybe that makes it more possible.
This is teaching of Buddha nature. And the fifth reason that, uh, that the Buddhas teach that all sentient beings have Buddha nature is uh, to relinquish this flaw of, I think the original says something like excessive self-cherishing, but it looks like the meaning, as I would understand it, is um, maybe the flaw of discrimination. The first two were like, um, relinquishing low self-esteem and overly inflated self-esteem. This would be a little different, closely related, but the discrimination amongst sentient beings based on the fact that we're all really different. So like, like uh, racism and sexism and speciesism right, are all these kinds of isms that are kind of discriminating among sentient beings about, um, you know, some are more valuable than others, some are more worthy than others, that kind of discrimination. Buddha nature is taught to um, eliminate that. Why? Because all sentient beings equally share in the same Buddha nature. <coughs> of course, our personalities are different, our, our observations are different, but uh, but who we really are, our true nature, is not different. So that these forms of, of like social discrimination are um, have no actual basis. That's a that's a kind of an amazing uh, implication of Buddha nature, uh, especially in the modern world of where there's all kinds of types of discrimination. Uh, this remembering, if a discriminating thought arises, remembering this teaching that, well, anyone I think is less worthy to um, uh, share this planet with, or that some lives don't matter uh, as much as mine, and my tribe, or my gender, or even my species, then uh, we can remember this teaching of Buddha nature. Any sentient being with a, with a mind has this naturally pure mind, that, which is the potential to um, be a completely awakened Buddha. It is kind of like a completely awakened Buddha. It's just temporarily, uh, temporarily hidden. It seems to be hidden by our thoughts and feelings and obscurations. So usually when we say completely awakened Buddha, we mean when there's no more obscurations or doubts about that. Yeah, can you follow these five reasons why Buddha nature was taught? I thought that's a nice uh, teaching hidden in the dual disposition treatise. Then um, we have infinite other teachings about Buddha nature. And I thought kind of nice, that was like the old ancient Indian way of talking. Now, in more recent times, we have people like Suzuki Roshi, our lineage founder in America. His uh, classic Zen mind, beginner's mind. Uh, is full of Buddha nature teachings. 
I, um, I really enjoy how we have a practice here at uh, Austin Zen Center to after um, morning service every day. Y'all are welcome to come and join this practice. After morning service, some, there's a, on the shelf up there is the book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And somebody picks it up and opens it at random and reads like a paragraph. And uh, I've never seen this at any other Zen center. Uh, I think it's just an awesome practice because you get to really, uh, day after day, we really get to know Suzuki Roshi in a random kind of way. <laughs> and uh, often I'm so, I'm so struck by those passages and often they use the term Buddha nature and sometimes they don't use the term, but they're referring to it. Suzuki Roshi likes the term big mind. I think that's his creative way of saying Buddha nature. So um, some Suzuki Roshi teachings on Buddha nature. Also in, um, in his book, um, Not Always So, he says, Suzuki Roshi says, the most important thing as some of you who know Suzuki Roshi books, he says this a lot. The most important thing is, and then I'll say various things. <laughs> I think someone was going to maybe create a collection of the most important thing. It's probably like a hundred times you said that, right? What are, are the hundred most important things? <laughs> but here he says, um, in our practice, the most important thing is to realize that we have Buddha nature. So on that day, that's what he said. And then uh, he went on to say, intellectually, we may know this, but it's rather difficult to accept. Sounds about right. <laughs> to fully accept especially to fully accept when these thoughts like I can't do this and I don't know that Buddha nature thing is like nice try, but <laughs> at those times it's rather difficult to accept. No, that very thought is arising from the ground of Buddha nature. Therefore, um, strictly speaking, we could say that that thought is perfectly pure because it's arising from the perfectly pure Buddha nature, but it seems to be a, a kind of impure thought that like, forget about this Buddha nature business. In Zen mind, beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi says, everyone has Buddha nature. We must find some way to realize our true nature. Some way. Here's one this weekend, Sashin's designed to realize Buddha nature. The purpose of practice is to have direct experience of the Buddha nature, which everyone has. Whatever you do should be the direct experience of Buddha nature. Now we might want to start deprecating. That's too much, <laughs> and, and this is a great, a great line of his. Buddha nature means, this is his definition. Buddha nature means 
to be aware of Buddha nature. Buddha nature means to be aware of Buddha nature. That's like a koan we can sit with. What is the meaning of Buddha nature? Buddha nature means to be aware of Buddha nature. Buddha nature is ordinary mind present right now, um, just experiencing whatever's happening um, without any discrimination, um, just pure, ever-present, unchanging awareness itself. Buddha nature means to be aware of this Buddha nature. Interesting. And uh, I think it was just this last week when somebody picked up the book after morning service and randomly opened it. Was it random or was it Suzuki Roshi's Buddha nature? <laughs> this would be good to talk about this weekend in Sashin. So I'm going to like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to empower up this particular page so someone's thumb will find it. He says, um, this is in the chapter on control. This is about not trying to control our, um, our obscuring thoughts. He says, uh, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. To die as a small being, we could say the sentient being uh, that has Buddha nature dies moment after moment. And that is um, living in the realm of Buddha nature. Say, so, well, if the, if the sentient being has Buddha nature and the sentient being dies, doesn't the, uh, wouldn't the Buddha nature die too? But uh, actually, I would propose if we look uh, even more deeply that um, we could rearrange the usual teaching that all sentient beings have Buddha nature to say that Buddha nature has all sentient beings. I that's my feeling that that's more true. Therefore, um, the sentient being that Buddha nature has can, that's the, the small being uh, that we, each of us is, can die moment to moment, can, can be let go of. And then what's left is Buddha nature. Some occasionally, um, some ancient teachers have said, um, well, Buddha nature is just another term for sentient beings because that's it's the true nature of all sentient beings. So sentient beings are Buddha nature. I think that's a valid teaching. And then another teacher once said, um, essentially, what are the obscurations to Buddha nature? What is it that seems to be hiding Buddha nature? These obscurations are called sentient beings. 
kind of the opposite. And I think both are nice pointers to how this is. What is it that blocks the, the, the undifferentiated, um, ever-present, uh, unchanging awareness? Sentient beings blocking. What are sentient beings? Small beings, the, the ones that, that feel as if they're separate entities, those kinds of sentient beings are the obscuration, the Buddha nature, and sentient beings also are Buddha nature. These kind of contradictory statements may make some sense as we start to talk about them, right? You can see how both could be true, right? Here Suzuki Roshi says, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being moment by moment. Whatever we see out there is changing, losing its balance. Everything we see is impermanent and changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it's out of balance, but its background is always in perfect harmony. This is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature, losing its balance against the background of perfect balance. The background of perfect balance, you could say, is the, is the uh, space-like, all-encompassing, borderless, um, locationless, timeless presence of awareness, always seemingly in the background. And in the foreground is all the stuff that we see that seems to be coming and going and losing its balance. But that the unchanging nature is always in perfect balance in the background. Where us sentient beings are really into foreground experiences like Oh, what's that? What, what's that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> These sensory experiences and, um, and the thoughts and emotions that arise from them is all this foreground stuff. It's that's what makes it hard to um, get in touch with the background of Buddha nature. We're, so, we're such foreground-oriented beings. All sentient beings are. Maybe another definition of sentient being. Here we have, we have three, three definitions today of sentient being. One is Buddha nature. One is the obscurations to Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. And one is um, um, those obsessed with the foreground. <laughs> and so Sashin, um, yes, we have to take care of the foreground like you know, when the servers come in and offer some food, we have to respond and hold out our bowl and so on. It's kind of foreground stuff. It, we want to, we're playing with the relationship of foreground and background. But in Zazen, um, we can sink more and more back into the, um, into the background of just awareness itself. 
Well, if you sit a lot, we, I think we naturally sink back more into presence. The foreground, there's not, there's less happening in the foreground in Sashin, right? It's another, we, we could talk about Sashin is designed to kind of minimize the foreground. Like this white wall that we look at, right? Is um, so nice. It's kind of in the foreground, but it's so plain. It's, you know, you can, you can make pictures on the wall if you want with your mind, but after a while, you probably get bored. And it's just like, it's almost like that foreground starts dissolving more and more into the background. The background becomes more um, prominent, I think, naturally by sitting. Here's another one that was, I think might have been read from the, from the book like this week, or at least in the past couple of weeks, which prompted me, so inspired hearing these sayings, prompted me to bring them up. Suzuki Roshi says, it's absolutely necessary for everyone to believe in nothing. It's <laughs> a good one. It's absolutely necessary for everyone to fully believe in nothing. And you said, is it talking about emptiness or just don't believe anything? I could hear it either way. Believe in nothing, but I don't mean voidness, he says. There is something, but that something is something which is always prepared for taking some particular form and it has some rules or theory or truth in its activity. This is called Buddha nature <laughs> of Buddha himself, herself, itself, Buddha self. And uh, Srimala Devi, Queen Srimala in her sutra says, Buddha nature is the ground and basis for the arising of birth and death and everything. She says something like that. That's kind of similar to uh, Suzuki Roshi saying, um, there is something, but that's something which is always prepared for taking some particular form. And according to certain rules or conditions, it's not like things are just popping up randomly, right? There's, there's these laws of dependent arising of how things come to be, but all of that is um, emerging from undifferentiated Buddha nature, in, according to Sri Mala Devi. So, and this is called this something. It's absolutely necessary to believe in nothing, but there is something, and this something is called Buddha nature. When this existence, I think he means of Buddha nature, when this reality of Buddha nature is personified, we call it Buddha. When it's like a, a person, <laughs> person who is in accord with Buddha nature, we call it Buddha. When we understand it as the ultimate truth, we call it Dharma, true Dharma. 
And when we accept the truth and act as part of the Buddha or according to this theory, we call ourselves Sangha, a community of practitioners trying to accord with Buddha nature. But even though there are these three Buddha forms, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it is one existence or one reality which has no form or color and it's always ready to take form and color. Isn't our um, ever-present awareness like that? It has no form and color, but it's always ready to manifest as form and color. It's part of the Buddha nature teaching that everything that's appearing is, uh, is arising from this ground of Buddha nature. And it's Buddha nature is ready to manifest, uh, even as a thought of like, I don't like this Buddha nature teaching and I'm out of here. <laughs> Buddha nature is ready to appear as that thought. That's how free it is. It's willing to appear as that thought according to the conditions, but certain rules, like if there's habit patterns to an ascension being to create such a thought, Buddha nature is like, okay, well, follow the habit patterns and the way that it will arise, this Buddha thought of like, I can't do this practice. It's allowed to arise that way. And it will arise that way according to the, the rules of the moment. This is not just theory, Suzuki Yoshi says, this is not just the teaching of Buddhism. This is the absolutely necessary understanding of our life. That's the chapter called Believing in Nothing. You must absolutely understand this. Believe in nothing. Do you have any, uh, any uh, questions about this? Any qualms, doubts? Yes. So if sentient beings are Buddha nature and sentient beings are also the obscuration of Buddha nature, does that mean that obscuration of Buddha nature is also within Buddha nature? Yes. So Elliot asked, um, if obscurations are Buddha nature and they also are Buddha nature, does that mean that the obscurations are within Buddha nature? Yes. Uh, I think that Queen Shimala is one of the, um, uh, the great Buddha nature um, lion's roarers <laughs> that uh, particularly brings out this point. This isn't always brought out that, um, that you know, she says birth and death arises from the ground, the basis or foundation of Buddha nature. It, part of, we could say birth and death also means all these obscurations. So it's, it's part of, it arises from, you could also say it's within, that's how you said it, I like that way of saying it, because this, if we're saying the space of awareness has no edges or boundaries, it is an all-inclusive awareness, everything that appears to arise must be arising within the space. There's nothing outside of the space of awareness. If there were something outside of the space in awareness, 
we would have no idea about it, right? By definition. So, well, maybe there's something outside of that, but us sentient beings will never be able to know anything about if there were or weren't. So there's no, and there's no reason to assume that there would be. And if we go further, we could even say, well, really, if this, if this awareness really literally has no boundaries, that literally means that it's impossible for there to be anything outside of it. So, um, but there are these, these thoughts like, I don't think I can do this practice. Where does that thought arise? It must be arising within Buddha nature. And to, if, we, if we warm up to that kind of teaching more and more, then the next time that thought arises, isn't it a different experience? I have a different relationship to that kind of thought, right? Because it might still be arising, but like, okay, Buddha nature wants to give rise to that thought now. Um, um, who am I? The small being, sentient being that I am, who am I to try to like get rid of that thought? If Buddha wants to give me that thought, then um, I accept it. And that way of accepting that thought, then kind of like the thoughts more like a, now more like a cloud instead of a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's workable, more workable. Yes. So would that be the, the obscurations within, would that be what we're talking about when we say Tathagata Garba? Yes. Well, Tathagata Garba, as Queen Fimala defines Tathagata Garba, which is, is really basically a synonym of Buddha nature in the, in the tradition. It's just another, it's a fancy other Sanskrit way of saying. So she defines Buddha nature as um, the pure dharmakaya, which is um, which is like the reality body of Buddha, um, which is saying completely um, unobscured, spacious, um, empty love and compassion. That's roughly, you could say, is dharmakaya. So she says um, that unobscured reality when it's mixed with the obscurations, mm -hmm. when it's temporarily obscured by these thoughts and feelings and so on, that's what we call Buddha nature. This isn't nice. Today I've been talking about Buddha nature, maybe a little bit more like the Dharmakaya itself, which sometimes it's not like that. But Srimala Devi kind of nuances a little bit. She says, let's use this term to talk about the Garba. You can use Buddha nature this way to mean um, the true reality that's completely unobscured while being temporarily hidden by the thoughts that themselves are, are the Dharmakaya, actually. But the thoughts that are the Dharmakaya seem to hide the Dharmakaya. At that time, the perfectly pure Dharmakaya, kind of hidden, perfectly complete, but hidden, Temporarily is called Buddha nature. Follow that one. Yes. So is it just hidden from the point of view of a sentient being? Nice. Thank you. Yeah. That clarification. 
Yes, exactly as you put it. It's, um, it's temporarily hidden from the point of view of a sentient being. And we could say, um, uh, maybe strictly speaking, any point of view, this is a fourth definition of sentient being today. Sentient being is called a point of view. It's like one, one point that has a particular view, even like, you know, like even just seeing, right? I see a certain Zendo here from this point of view, and Meikon sees a different Zendo from her point of view because her eyes are located differently. We can't escape that, kind, that, that aspect of sentient beingness, but we can also know that, that the Dharmakayas actually doesn't have a point of view. Yeah, so, so um, it's, it's hidden from the point of view of a sentient being. Or we could even say it's hidden by the point of view that we call a sentient being. Yes? So if all sentient beings are capable of realizing their Buddha nature, then why does Buddha nature create obscurations? So um, now as if all sentient beings are um, capable of realizing their Buddha nature and being Buddha, fully awake, being a fully awakened Buddha, why um, the the why are there obscurations? What was why it? does yeah? Why does Buddha nature create? Oh yeah, why does Buddha nature create the obscurations? And I think we could say that that Buddha nature creates or manifests. Um, gives rise to the obscurations. Yeah. Queen um, <laughs> Srimala, we haven't gotten to this part in the sutra, but um, I can't, can't quite remember exactly how she says it. We'll try to cover it in the last class. I think she says near the end of the sutra, um, um, this is totally amazing that Buddha nature can be can be um, totally. Um, or I think she says maybe that the that there's a that there is a naturally pure mind, and that the naturally pure mind um, can be obscured. That's amazing. She thought, and how could even that be? Or like, how could this be? And then the Buddha. Who's listening to Queen Shimala's discourse says, um, you're right, Queen Shimala. There are two things that are, I think he says, inconceivable in this world. One is the naturally pure mind. Like maybe we say the Dharmakaya. Um, that's one, it's inconceivable. We can't say anything about it really. And the second one is that <laughs> this. this naturally pure mind can be hidden by these obscurations. That is inconceivable how that is so, or it's just amazing how that is so. So without offering any explanation for it, of why, just <laughs> don't even try it. It's just inconceivable. It's a nice, it's a nice section there. Um, but another explanation, if we wanted to um, attempt one is like Suzuki Roshi saying, um, there is something, and that something is always prepared for taking some particular forms, and it has some rules 
or theory or truth in its activity. This is called Buddha nature. So we could say, why did the obscurations come and block it? And so much suffering, unnecessary suffering, right? Um, why? It's according to the rules. <laughs> it's according to the rules. What are the rules? Um, Buddha teaches the basic, the basic bottom line rule of the game, the sentient being game that we're playing here. The basic um, kind of one rule is called dependent co-arising. You could say that um, means um, when this arises, this comes to be. When this ceases, this ceases. And basically that everything arises in dependence on other factors. That's the basic rule of the game. And it's profound teaching and we could go on for hours about the teaching of dependent co-arising. Everything arises in dependence on, on um, factors other than itself. And we could say with that rule in mind, it's a, um, or the Buddha nature, um, you know, the Dharmakaya, the naturally pure mind gives rise to experiences like suffering. Um, why does it, why did, or let's say um, grasping the thought of like, uh, the thought of like, I don't know what, what's being talked about here at all. And, and like, can we go back to Zazen? <laughs> that thought of Buddha gives rise to that thought. Why that thought? Because the rule of dependent arising is that that thought, the manifestations arise according to conditions. That thought is not random. There's other thoughts and patterns that um, produce the particular thoughts. And so, um, so these, and these patterns are like workable. We can, they, they're changing all the time. They're impermanent. They're, um, they're like our personality. That's why we're all different personalities. That's our dependently arising patterning, um, all equally arising from the same Buddha nature. The nature of each pattern is identical in its true nature, but the patterns are different according to our conditioning. Our conditioning all the way back through this lifetime, back to our like our birth in this world. And the Buddhas would say, Go further back, back before the birth, back before, before your parents were born, back, back further and further, infant, beginningless conditioning, beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, in particular patterns, and, and um, like that. Anybody in Zoom land? Uh, Rich. I wanted to pick up on that quote by Suzuki Roshi that it's important to believe in nothing. And I was thinking about the, the concept of emptiness and how I remember one um, Rinpoche telling this, talking about emptiness and saying, well, this idea of emptiness sort of um, in the Mahayana teachings came up in the Prajnaparamitas was came up at this around the same time as the idea of zero, that zero is, is nothing, except when it's not nothing, except when it's everything. Right, that the idea that okay, there's nothing, but everything sort of arises out of that in the multiplicity of views and forms, and so it's like, where do the obscurations come from? This multiplicity of forms and views and perspectives, and but it's really coming from nothing. Yes, yeah, yeah. And isn't it isn't it wonderful how since 
some ancient times, I don't know when this began, but that um, at least in our, in our numbering system, the way we write the character for zero is a, you know, is a Zen circle, <laughs> you know, out of which, you know, it's the, it's the container for everything. Yeah. And one is like the emergence of something. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And how Suzuki Roshi said um, quite wonderfully in that section, right? Uh, it's absolutely necessary to believe in nothing, but I don't mean voidness. There is something. So in his particular language here, it sounds to me like he's saying this nothing can also be called something. It's the something that's not, it's not a void nothingness. It's a, um, it's a reality. So I think when he says something, he doesn't mean something like the other things that are appearing. I, I would imagine that he means there's, there's some presence. It's not an absence, it's a presence. And um, sometimes emptiness is taught as a mere absence, like in the Prajnaparamita sutras, like this morning when we chanted, no eyes, no ears, no nose. That's like a mere absence. But sometimes it's taught as a presence called Buddha nature. It's not a thing. There's not, if we look for this ordinary mind, we don't find anything there, but we also don't find nothing because it's like light. It's radiant um, luminosity, isn't it? That enables us to be experiencing this miraculous life and uh, this um, ungraspable luminosity is, uh, is not nothing but also it's not something. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So um, with all of this in mind, now we have um, many, many periods of zazen and you're all welcome to sit zazen whenever you like. Us in the room here um, can't just sit whenever we like, we have to sit when the schedule tells us. <laughs> But we don't mind. We signed up for it, even though you might think that we're, we were foolish for doing so. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the Sashin is designed for sentient beings to die. <laughs> <laughs>